Good afternoon, and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez, and this week I had the pleasure of talking with Luis Alfaro. Luis Alfaro works in plays, poetry, short stories, performance, and journalism. A Chicano born and raised in the Pico Union District of downtown Los Angeles, his work has accumulated numerous awards and recognitions. Among them are a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, an artist-in-residence at the Mark Taper Forum, where he is co-director of the Latino Theater Initiative. He has been awarded the Kennedy Center Fund for New American Plays twice for his play Electricidad and the other Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner. A highly anthologized writer, he is featured in the anthologies O Solo Homo, Twelve Shades Red, and Particular Voices, Portraits of Gay and Lesbian Writers, and also Extreme Exposure, an anthology of solo performance texts from the 20th century. He has toured his work throughout the United States, England, and Mexico. His film, Chiganismo, was Emmy-nominated and won Best Experimental Film at San Antonio Cine Festival. As an activist, he works with at-risk youth, has co-founded three non-profit arts organizations, and chaired the Gay Men of Color Consortium. He will be in the Bay Area next week at Macla in San Jose, where Teatro Vision is presenting his play, Hero, the story of a young hero coming home from Iraq, and his family who find themselves at a loss as to how to celebrate his return. Heroes directed by Elisa Marina Alvarado and running through April 27th. I started our conversation by asking Luis why it was important for him to talk about a hero coming home from war. Well, I think it was important for me to write about how I think we're not talking about the war. So in a way, you know, born and raised in a very, I, I would say, a very traditional Chicano family, I felt like uh, every time I went home uh, for holidays or, to t you know, everything, birthdays, I always felt like no one really knew how to talk about war. And I come from a, I would say, ra a rather conservative, very born-again Christian family. And so it's always interesting when we try to sort of delve into the political, you know, dialogue, because it's always a little bit difficult. And um, so I found that every time I sort of mentioned something about Iraq, everybody sort of wanted not to mention it. <laughs> So I really started to write a comedy about how difficult it is to talk about the things you really want to talk about. And one of those main subjects, of course, is what's going on there. Also, I know that so many Latino families are uh, entrenched in the war because of their children. And uh, the record number of Latinos who joined the Army, the Marines, the Navy, all, all of that is just really interesting to me. You know, Now that I'm teaching, I meet so many of these young people who find that the really the kind of outlet for them out of out of the barrios is to join the military and i find that fascinating i'm not sure they know exactly what they're joining but i think they, they do see it as a as a way of getting out of the poverty and and getting yourself educated so it's it's a positive although i'm not sure they think about the war so much Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you talk about that because on a very personal note, I have a niece and she was up here visiting. I was taking her to different colleges and she really thinks that she might join the army because, well, it'll be fun to travel. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I have a line in the play where the guy says, uh, you know, he's uh, the young man uh -huh. who comes back from Iraq is talking to his Vietnam vet uncle. And right. he says, so what were you doing out there? And he says, well, you know, we fought. And he says, Wow. You fought. Whoa. And he says, what did you think we were doing? He says, I don't know, like playing Beatles records. 
you know, so there's this kind of view of what war is and the romanticized version of war. But mm-hmm. also, I think it's interesting that our images of the war have changed so radically. I mean, I think uh, from what I know and what I've read is that one of the reasons why I think the Vietnam War uh, was stopped was because middle class families had access to television and they had access to watching the brutality of war. And now, when you get a sort of news item on your regular local stations, you know, you, you don't really see the bodies. You see very little trace of, like, human loss. I mean, you see, you know, the bombed buildings, and you see these sort of empty cavernous spaces that are deserted. But you don't really see the human cost of what war is. And I think that that's one way in which... You know, the media and technology and everything, you know, the advancements we made have just sort of made it possible to go somewhere in the world and sort of see kind of a cleaned up version. So the control of that is interesting to me. And we had interviewed these young guys who had come back um, from Iraq uh, when I was first writing the play. And, you know, and a lot of them didn't really have much of a clue as to what was really going on globally. And I find that more and more I hear that from vets is that they know what's going on sort of within their region or their area, but they don't really have a a, a notion of what the big picture is. You know, even the way war looks now, you have Hero coming back and really he got hurt in such a, well, let's just say such a unglamorous way, you know? I mean, he fell off a truck. And with that comes all the the expectation, the superficial expectation, if you will, of his family, not really knowing you know exactly the whole story, but somehow everyone needs the hero. Everyone is expecting something that he's not. Well, he's kind of a representation, I think, of the culture at large right now, and I think that he does represent for the family this sort of what I call the American Idol expectation of how we live. Is that you know there's this idea that everybody can be a celebrity these days, right? Everybody can be a YouTube star. And in that respect, I find it really fascinating in the culture that this guy who doesn't really do much, he has this sort of silly accident, and he comes back and they want to get him to the key to the city, right? And it seems sort of in line with our desire or our need in a time where things are rapidly changing and our, our disassociation from culture and community that um, we want, we're looking for actively looking for heroes and that anybody can be one. What was interesting was that even Junior, who's the twin that stays home and is uh, kind of a very superficial activist, right. let's say that. Right. And, and of course, Destiny, who's one of those uh, hip girls. Right. You know, what was interesting, even though they didn't have a whole lot of knowledge, quote unquote, mm-hmm. something about the war just doesn't sit right. Well, I think everybody has an idea, you know, and and I find this a lot because, you know, I I work with kids in jails, and I work with a lot of, uh, you know, like I do a program with uh, young pregnant girls, and so a lot of my life as an artist is in community service, so a lot of the work I do is community-based, so meaning that I work with people who have nothing to do with art, but I'm hopefully using art as a way of empowering them to think about their lives, right? And a lot of what I hear from young people is that they... They'll look at something like the war, and they don't really understand it, but they are suspicious. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that everything in a young person's life now is really technology-based. 
you know. We used to use ten fingers, they used two thumbs. You know, mm -hmm. this kind of like that's progress. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And in a strange way, they they are suspicious of everything they hear. They don't be really believe it all because they know how people can, do uh, you know, um, what is the doctor something? You know, they know how videos get doctored. They know how they know the technology behind everything. So I'm always fascinated when I talk to young people because it's hard to get them to believe almost anything. Mm -hmm. You know, because mm -hmm. they sort of feel, uh, and I'm, I'm generalizing here, but in a classroom generally, people will know about fabrication. Mm -hmm. And I think that that fabrication of that idea that things are fabricated also extends into uh, the political, the social, uh, the personal, and even the spiritual. There's lots of reasons why young people are cynical. But I think there's that uh, one of my jobs is to uh, help inspire imagination and the fantastical and to also inspire uh, the questions. Mm -hmm. So I feel that as a writer, you know, I tend to in my plays not to provide too many answers, which can be very frustrating, and I pay the price sometimes with critics around that. But I really feel that, you know, when I came into my own as a writer, one of the things that I always remember the big great writers saying was that your job was to ask the questions, let the audience answer them, right, in the way that they will answer them. And so uh, I may be guilty of maybe not asking enough questions or making them too subtle, but I love this notion that that's what I do with young people, is that I'm really just trying to ask them questions that hopefully they will uh, create the answers for. And you give them enough ethics and uh, morality and, you know, all that good stuff that they can use to sort of really um, dig deep into their lives to think about what the real issues are. And in this case, I chose two brothers who are 18 years old because I wanted to really think about that next generation. And I really wanted to talk about how the next generation might be looking at issues of war and conflict, but also not just the conflict uh, uh, on, the, on the other side of the world, but the conflict in this country and the conflict that you have inside. Mm -hmm. And they were all very complicated, complex people. And so I was really dealing with, um, although you might not see it exact in the play, is that every character is having a little bit of a war inside. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. really troubled by something. And then this girl comes in, and her name is Destiny, and she's the girlfriend, and she's got no troubles. <laughs> in a kind of strange way, she's got no troubles because she's got no worries because she doesn't really care. Uh -huh. And that's always scary to me because right. I'm always afraid when uh, when I meet somebody who says, "Oh, I don't vote," you know, that just drives me insane, right? Uh, or when I meet, you know, when I talk to my students, they say, "Oh, I just, you know, I don't care because I don't read the paper." You're listening to a conversation with playwright, author, poet, and filmmaker Luis Alfaro. And we're talking about one of his plays, Hero, which is being produced by Teatro Vision and is playing at MACLA, located in downtown San Jose through April 27th. I'm Amelia Gonzalez here on Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I wanted to get back to raising questions with your artwork as opposed to having the answer. And the play does end with uncertainty as to what's going to happen. I also wanted to talk about your willingness to talk about those issues that are difficult. This isn't new to you. I mean, we're talking about the war, but um, you've written also straight as a line, uh, using comedy as well. That's told in a series of short scenes, and it talks about 
issues of disease, obsession, and family ties. And then you also have co-written with Diane Rodriguez, Los Vecinos, talking about modern-day shepherds as neighbors who suffer through terrible natural disasters. So you don't generally write about easy stuff. No, you know, I, I read once, uh, I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said, if you're going to talk to people uh, about something real or honest, you better make them laugh. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Or if you're going to tell people what's wrong, you better make them laugh. And, uh, you know, I think that I have a lot of uh, desires, and I have a lot of a point of view about the world, mm-hmm. and I want to share it, and I have a lot of uh, emotions, a lot of strong emotions about what I feel about the world. But I... Um, I think the best way to sort of take that kind of medicine sometimes is while you're laughing or enjoying yourself. I want people to enjoy themselves when they come to the theater. I love that the theater is not like a movie. It allows us to be fantastical, to be theatrical, to be big. So a lot of the plays, you know, uh, Straight as a Lion, it's so funny you should mention that play because I wrote it after my friend Gil Quadros, this wonderful poet, uh, uh, died. He had written a book called City of God. It was published by City Lights Books, and um, he died of AIDS, and I was so distraught and upset. And so I started writing this little comedy about this guy, and it's who reconnects with his mother after many years, and they move to Las Vegas, and it's all about how you know the myth of Las Vegas, right? And I didn't think much of that play, and we did it off Broadway in New York, and a bunch of companies did it, you know, and I was real happy because uh, an Asian American company did it, then a African American company did it. So not just the Latino companies started to do it, but everybody did it. And you know, uh it's just it just got done in Greece. It's running there now. And it just finished a two and a half year run at the National Theatre Romania. Wow. And part of why I think it's so popular and it stayed, you know, so popular is that in Eastern Europe right now, AIDS is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. It's a gigantic mm-hmm huge epidemic right now and so the play just happened to be around at the right time mm-hmm. and so people have really embraced the play because it talks about the issues of family and and uh how you know a lot of families sort of once someone is stricken with AIDS, they they sort of throw them out of the families and so it was interesting just to see what was going on in romania around that and to see that the play was a way of of, of creating discourse so i think that sometimes uh, you write something, and it just sort of lands in the popular culture. Right now I'm doing a play that goes up this year at the um, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Uh-huh. So I go up there and made a rehearse, and it's, it's a little comedy about two sisters, and it's called Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner. Uh-huh. And one of them is really thin, and the other one is really big. And the big one starts to uh, get really big, and then she starts to float away. <laughs> and so huh. it's this kind of silly comedy about our bodies, but it really mm. talking about obesity and i'm talking about the costco culture and i'm talking about how we live in a culture now where we have so much of everything but so little choice Mm. and i really like i really like i'm so happy that that um i think funny or that things come out funny but you know i wrote a little play that they did in san jose and it's i think it's just like on its 20th production now it's called electricidad and it's an adaptation Mm -hmm. of electra and you know it was about gang culture today, and my version of it was that 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 what the Greeks were going through, this desire to revenge, this desire to avenge to uh, that we poison ourselves when we don't forgive right? right was really present in gang culture, and you know uh, there was a lot of humor in it, and a lot of uh, critics really were angry with me for for kind of trying to make comedy out of uh, Sophocles, but it's so fascinating to me that 
the play is having this really interesting life in community centers and a lot of community groups do the play and one of the, the, the one of the reasons why it's so popular is that for people who've never come to theater that first sort of step into the world of, of Electra and Sophocles is and allows you to be humorous and allow people to say, this is not a scary thing, this theater is great, and you can have a good time, and you can explore the great themes of the world, and you can ask questions of your culture and your community, and we can do it through humor. Right. And that's right. one thing that, as a Mexican, I'm so proud of, because I I always remember just growing up and thinking about the Garpa shows and... and you know, going down to the Million Dollar Theater in downtown L.A. and seeing these hilarious sort of variety shows and variedades, I think they were called, right? Right. But we used to go to a lot of that because my father's very, very Mexican. But I always remember a moment in those shows. There was a serious moment. Whether it was a ballad that somebody sung or some little declamation, a declaration that somebody did, those things really stayed with me. The moment where we would stop and think about the border, or we would stop and think about the homeland, or, you know, I remember how emotional my parents got just to think about back home, and they were farm workers from Delano, so, you know, the notion that we were sort of transient people, and I think that the that that our art is the thing that kept us so tied together, you know, that gave us the, the comfort and the warmth, and um, so, I don't know, there's something about that connection to me, about making people laugh, and and I also think that when people are laughing, they listen to things in a different way. Mm-hmm. So you can actually kind of even get in deeper, right. when, you know, when they're laughing because you're able to say things that you normally wouldn't be able to say. And so it's a tricky moment when you can um, when you can have somebody sort of having a great time and then they're listening to a very difficult, complex idea being expressed that might not be their own, mm-hmm. you know. Who do you think you're writing for? Well, ultimately, I'm writing for myself. I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I have this sort of idea that a play, I have three I have three notions of three different kinds of plays. A play is a conversation that you have with God, yourself, or with a lover. So the, my lover plays are very intimate, small plays. My uh, my God plays are these big idea plays about what's going on in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and then the plays that I'm having sort of there are all sort of plays that I'm talking to myself, uh, questions that I have about the world. These desires, these things that sit inside of me, and then I fill them out. And I and I hope that somebody relates to them. But, you know, my little kernel of truth, I try to find the humanity in it, and I try to find the, the notion that other people might share into them. I try to find that thing that might be the thing that bring us all together. But ultimately, I think that um, when I choose audiences, that's usually when I fall apart. That's usually when they have a terrible play. Because then what happens is, what's happened for me at least, Mm -hmm. is that my work is now gone not just beyond my community, but I think through my community. So a lot of times when I get excited about how my plays are not just in little teatros, but in Greece, and, you know, I just had a play in in Japan, you know, the, the, the notion that my plays are going out into the world is so exciting. But I don't feel like I'm walking away from my community. I feel like I take my community. Mm-hmm. I take my Chicanoness to Romania. I'm taking Chicanos to England. I'm taking Chicanos to Canada. That you know, where that I take all of that stuff with me on these journeys. So I try not to limit myself and think about the audience. The minute I start to think, oh, 
what will my mother think about this? Then I'm doomed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because I read about Hero that it actually, was it running simultaneously with a Latino cast and an Asian cast? Yeah, or? that was the most exciting thing. Was that, that was very interesting. And you know what? That play, we didn't change a single word and mm-hmm. we, we, uh, we blocked it the exact same way. But when the Asian cast did it versus the Latino cast, it was like watching two different plays. So a lot of people came and watched both casts because they were fascinated by the notion of how this looked, right? right. To people, that it was very odd that people were looking at this play thinking, and you know, it's always weird because you're scared of being stereotypical, but the Asian cast took the play inward. Like, they never sort of yelled at each other. They looked at each other in a certain way, and they knew something. And the Asian audience would look at that play, and, and it was very deep for them. And it was quiet. The Latino cast was, like, screaming. You know? <laughs> you know? And it was very funny, because in the Latino audience, it's really related to that, the loudness uh-huh. of this family, right? But I just think that it was, like, two different ways to see something, you know, two different right. ways to see the same artwork. Bringing well, that it, speaks to the universality of, of the core of what you're talking about absolutely so bringing mm-hmm. that into the experience is extraordinary to me mm-hmm. i love that i love that i love that as a latino i get to bring myself into every experience but also share and so much of my work my artwork is about connecting many different kinds of communities so you know i direct a lot of like right now i'm directing a nigerian american woman from bakersfield how exciting right wow. uh-huh. and so you know in a way it's it's the world that I mean, I grew up in this really, really poor neighborhood in downtown, right in the center of downtown LA. It's called Pico Union. I know exactly and, where that is. Yeah, <laughs> when I was a kid, I just never imagined that I would go anywhere. And I just remember my brother was in a gang, and there was just a sense that we, I just felt lost. You know, I sort of felt like well, I'm never going to escape this. And there was so much violence and drugs, and I just, it felt like a dead end, you know, and I can understand why people go to the military. Mm-hmm. Because in a way, I was always looking for the way out from that neighborhood. And at some point, I started to love that neighborhood, and I started to love the people, and I started to write about them. And that was the thing that changed me, right? But it's interesting to think that, that in a way, I get to go out into the world, and I get to see the world, and I get to share my little Pico Union with the world. And I'm always writing about that place. So you take that stuff with you. Right, mm-hmm. everywhere you go. I hope that we all want, as citizens and as, um, you know, as artists especially, that we want to grow and we want to see the world and we want to belong to a community that's larger than us. There's a famous woman named Bernice Johnson Regan who's in a Sweet Honey in the Rock. Sweet Honey in the Rock. And I remember being at a, on a panel with her and she said, listen, if you're really comfortable in your coalition, then your coalition is not big enough. And I always remember that, that you have to look. Especially as an artist, I have to look for where the tension is, where's the drama, where's the conflict, where are we disagreeing, and then those are the people that I have to collaborate with, because that's the way I change the world. So when I work in like the prison program, those kids drive me insane. They drive me insane. They're disrespectful. They, they generally don't know how to read or write, you know, and mm-hmm. yet there's something marvelous about bringing art to people because eventually you find each other you find yourself in each other 
and they start to write poetry, and you start to imagine what it means to be locked up, and you start to think about how great your life is and what you can bring to the experience, and there's a real sharing that goes on. But that first moment, I always dread it. You know, I always dread it. It's so hard. Right. You know, but it's also it's hard because it's not me. Uh-huh. And so I always have to remember that, you know, it's just right. it's not me. And now how do I find myself? How do I see myself in a young 15-year-old boy who's incarcerated, who's going to go right into the adult system, and he's committed murder, and why? And, you know, a lot, I, I had an experience a few years ago where I was at a prison, and um, a young guy came up to me, and he says, hey, uh, do you have a brother named Mondo? It's my, my brother Armando. I said, yeah. And he said, I know your brother. He says, I remember growing up with your brother in the neighborhood, you know, and he knew where I lived. And unfortunately, in the prison program, you can't know you're, you're incarcerated, so I had to be transferred out of that program. But it was very interesting, this moment. I thought, that could have been me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And why did I get to go out and see the world? And why did I get to express it in art? And why do I get to ask the big questions? You know, right now that you were talking about working with young folks and the body of work that you have, some of the plays have been very intimate, uh, such as uh, your Cuerpo Politizado, that right. was a, a one-man show. And I also know you're a poet, and I wondered, is there... That level of intimacy is one way, such as writing a play, can it be as intimate as poetry? Sure, because, you know, writing a play, and, you know, it's been, I've been very lucky because I tend to write a lot of journalism and I write a lot of short story and I get published a lot in anthologies. And the thing about plays is plays are characters speaking their hearts. So I can't imagine something more intimate than somebody allowing you into their soul to express some truth about themselves. And uh, there's always a moment in a play of mine where somebody says something that's deeply personal that is some moment, you know, I have a moment in my play right now in the breakfast, lunch, and dinner, for instance, where the woman who is so big and she's so uh, frightened about her obesity and not be, she can't get out of the house. She just doesn't fit out of any room. And she has this really scary monologue where she's talking about her desperation. I don't know where that came from. I don't know how it came from me. I know that they're all an like expression of something probably I feel about the world. But that kind of, you, I, I weep when I write those plays. You know, mm-hmm. like you bleed those plays. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I think if you can get to one sort of human truth, just one human truth in a play, you've accomplished so much. So to let people hear themselves in other people, it's extraordinary. I mean, I, I just, I just, the experience is extraordinary. It's amazing. But it's so hard. It's so hard to do. It's, you, it requires so much. And, you know, I think every, every time I write a play, a piece of myself goes with that play. And it's different than poetry. Poetry is, poetry for me is a kind of, um, it's the meditation. Mm-hmm. And the play is the kind of conversation. And so that's medita- a nice way of putting it. Yeah. So the meditation of poetry is always so internal for me, and the conversation of a play is, I guess, my desire is. When I was first writing, I was exclusively just a poet, and I felt so lonely being a poet. I think I'm too social, probably a person, but uh, I always felt sad about the fact that, you know, unless you had a reading scheduled or something, you know, poetry is very much a, a solitaire sport, you know. And that's really hard to do. So it's the sharing of theater that became, for me, the most important, powerful thing. 
You've been listening to a conversation with renowned playwright, author, poet, and filmmaker Luis Alfaro. And we've been talking about his work, including one of his plays, Hero. With humor and insight, Luis Alfaro has explored a young man's decision to go to war in Hero. Teatro Vision is presenting this play at Matla, located at 510 South 1st Street in downtown San Jose. For more information, you can go to www.teatrovision.org or call 408-272-9926. Thanks to Teatro Vision, we're able to give away a pair of tickets for April 24th, Thursday which will include the pre-play conversation with Luis Alfaro, and we'll give them to the fifth caller. So you can call at 510-848-4425 once Free Speech Radio News starts. Again, that's to the fifth caller at 510-848-4425, and we'll give you a pair of tickets for the pre-play discussion with Luis Alfaro, as well as a performance of Hero all starting at 6 p.m. on Thursday, April 24th. Again, this is at Macla in downtown San Jose. This has been Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. With Erica Bridgman at the controls, I've been your host, Amelia Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. On Thursday, April 24th, Harnack Radio and the Alameda County Interagency Policy Council invite you to join in as we unveil the hard truths behind the growing epidemic of commercially sexually exploited children in the Bay Area. This town hall titled No Longer Invisible will feature special guest speakers and full community dialogue. The panel discussion will be moderated by Harnack Radio's Wayland Southern and broadcast live during the Harnack Radio Hour. It's all going down Thursday, April 24th from 4 to 5 p.m. at the Youth Uprising Center located at 8711 MacArthur Boulevard in Oakland, California. The event is free and wheelchair convenient. For more information, contact Zandra Washington at 510-618-3458. This event is proudly sponsored by Hard Knock Radio. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley. KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at KPFB.